I just want to thank the music team for leading us in worship this morning. That was very encouraging being able to sing these festive songs about what Christ has done for us. Um, if you have your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 2. Rebecca is going to come up and read for us this morning. We're not going to be going through Acts the next couple of weeks, but we'll be taking a little bit of a hiatus and looking at the incarnation of Christ and having the, the Christmas message. Let's stand for our reading. Reading. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God was highly has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that it, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning for <clears throat> your kindness that you have shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have revealed him to us, that we have beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten Son of the Father, and that that glory has transformed our life, our aspirations, our purpose our treasures. Thank you for giving us a new heart that can know you and understand you and love you and walk in your will. And this morning, as we look to your word again, we ask that we would be refreshed, encouraged, challenged to be more like Christ in his humility. We thank you, and we lean on you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think oftentimes during the Christmas season, we hear about uh, the nativity scene a lot. We hear about the birth of Christ. We hear about the coming of Christ. He was born in the manger, that there's no room in the inn. We hear about the magi that were coming. We hear about the shepherds that heard the glorious theme that to them a, a son is given, is born, right? The good news of the gospel. And at times, I feel like we can uh, stick or stay, get stuck inside of simply the nativity scene and what Christ has done in December. And as I keep thinking about the gospel and all the implications of the, of the gospel, we realize that Christ coming on earth was just the beginning of uh, what continues to transpire in our life. And so this morning, I wanted to meditate with you about the 
effects of the gospel of Christ coming in our life. So that as we do understand and see him coming on earth, we would also understand the implications of what that means. Because as we read the epistles that Paul wrote or Peter wrote, we realize that everything that we do as believers always points back to the incarnation, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Our whole life is summed up in either looking to the life of Christ, how he lived, the resurrection of Christ, the power that we now have in Christ, the incarnation of Christ, knowing that he is a compassionate high priest, or the death of Christ, reminding us that we are also dead to sin. And so as we meditate on the gospel this morning, Paul is calling us to, in this passage specifically, to be humble like Christ was. You know, during the Christmas season, we talk about different topics. The preeminence of Christ, that he's above all. The compassion of Christ, that he's a good teacher, a good role model. That Jesus represents God. We think about the beauty of Christ and the glory of Christ. We think about what he has accomplished in salvation, but... How often do we think about the humility of Christ? Now, I think that you would agree with me that humility is a very sought-out trait. Who doesn't like to live with a humble person? Who does not like to have a humble boss? Who doesn't like to minister with humble people in the church? Who doesn't like humble or teachable children? You see, the reason why we adore and we love humility is because it causes and produces unity. It produces harmony peace, understanding, care, and compassion. And if those things are missing, that means that there is a very important element that's missing in our relationships, which is humility. Humility also catches the gaze of God. God says that he will look at the one who is humble and contrite in spirit in Isaiah 66. And so this morning, I want to think about the humility of Christ, but also the humiliation of Christ. How often does it amaze us that what we are celebrating in the incarnation is this idea, think with me, the invisible, unknowable, intangible, immeasurable, and eternal God takes on flesh. He's able to be known, touched, measured, and finite. The idea of unlimited God taking on form is what we call incarnation. And I believe Spurgeon explains it well and shows us the awe and wonder that we should be in when we think of the incarnation. He writes this, you and I can have no idea of how high an honor it is to be equal with God. How can we therefore measure the descent of Christ when our highest thoughts cannot comprehend the height from which he came? The depth to which he descended is immeasurably below any point we have ever reached, and the height from which he came is inconceivably above our loftiest thought. We do not understand really where Jesus came from. Yes, we have it in Scripture but I think when we get to heaven, we will realize his glories in full, and we'll see him face to face. And then the gospel will be even more sweeter to us because we see the loftiest height that Christ came from. This is why the incarnation is unfathomable. God who stands lofty above all becomes man. So for us to really be in awe of the humility of Christ, we must first understand the glories from which he came down. This is what I want to look with you together in this passage in Philippians 2. And I want to call you to embrace the example of Christ. Embrace the example of Christ. Or another way to put it is make Christ your role model. Where do we get this idea in this passage? We find it in verse 5 where we read, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I want to give you a little bit of context of the book of uh, Philippians. Paul is calling them. He says, have this mindset. Have this nature. Have this attitude in yourself, that which was of Christ, which was what? It was humility. And we'll see that in verses 6, 7, and 8. Now, why did Paul need to call this church at Philippi to humility? Well, because we know that in chapter 4, there were divisions among them. And because of these divisions and the lack of unity, the gospel was not going forth as it should have been going forth. The gospel was being hindered. And so in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember, let your manner of life be in balance with the gospel. That whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he begins reminding them of what they actually have in Christ. He says that you have comfort from love. You do have participation in the same spirit, do you not? You have affection and sympathy. Since you have all those things, complete my joy being the same mind. Think of others more significant than yourself. Don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this humility is what is going to bring unity, is what is going to achieve harmony, is what, where there's going to be compassion and understanding and love. And then he says, I want you to look to the one who has done this. I want you to look once again to Christ, nowhere else, not any books, not any other teachings. I want you to look to the person of Jesus Christ because it is really Christ's life and his example and his teaching that transforms our life. And so as we begin in verse 6, we see the first sign or the first thing we need to be looking at, the character trait that Jesus had in humility, and that was zero entitlement. Zero entitlement. In verse 6, we read, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ is God. Jesus came on earth. He said, I and the Father are one. He also said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him because he made himself equal with God. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus had a right assessment of who he was. Paul here says, although he was in the form of God, although he was God himself, form not meaning that some outward shape of like you're going to be baking cookies for Christmas and you're going to take that form and then you're going to dip it into dough and make Christmas trees or make circles or make stars. Not that kind of form, but we're talking about the inner nature Four means the inner nature, not the outward. Form is this idea of when you grow up and you say, I'm not going to be like my parents, and then you look in the mirror and you look at your actions, and then you're just like your parents. Or you say, I want to be like my parents, and you grow up and you are like that. That is the form, your inner person. And so this is who Jesus was. He had a right assessment of himself. You know, there's people who have a wrong assessment of themselves, and that's typically you and I. We think that uh, we can do more than we can, so we bite off more than we could chew. We think that we are faster than we really are, so we give ourselves less time to do something only to realize it took an extra hour. We sometimes have a wrong assessment of ourselves, of our abilities, of our capacities. Christ had a right assessment of who he was. He was God Almighty in, 
in essence. And so therefore, Jesus was able to represent God. He is the exact imprint of his very nature. What do we know about God when we say that Jesus is God in his nature? I think we think about the holiness of God. When Israel makes a calf and Moses stands before God, God says, I'm going to destroy these people. I'm going to, from you, make another group of people. And Moses intervenes. That's the holiness of God. Moses can't see God's glory and live, so God hides him in a cleft of a rock. The angels who fly around Jesus Christ in Isaiah 6, the one who is sitting enthroned, and they have to cover their face and their feet, and they cry, holy, holy, holy. A single angel who goes and kills an army of 185,000 people. I want to read a quote to you from David Jeremiah. He says this, If anyone had the right to be self-centered, it was Jesus Christ. He had existed throughout eternity. If we are to understand the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, we must try to comprehend the lofty position he held before he was made man. Not only had Christ existed eternally, but he had existed eternally as God. Christ, who is equal in every way to God, the exact imprint of his nature, in the beginning with God, the I am. But Paul says, although he is God, in verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does this mean? It means that Jesus Christ put away his rights. He doesn't count equality something to contend with. He's not trying to grasp at it. He doesn't say, Father, since we're both equal, how about you come down to earth and become a man? Or he doesn't say, let's send the Holy Spirit to become incarnate. They are two equals, but Jesus does not hold on to it like a wild card. Jesus has all the privileges and the rights, but he decides to lay them aside. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this is what we see here, zero entitlement. Jesus doesn't say, doesn't feel entitled to his status of who he is. He lays that aside for your and my benefit, for the purpose of accomplishing salvation. What we see here next in verse 7 is radical service but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Radical service. What is really fascinating in this passage is what Jesus does with all the power and authority that he has. He chooses to humble himself instead of using his divine power to assert himself. Now, what does he do? The most natural thing here would be for Jesus to live out the privileges that he had. But he does what is contrary to that. I think about times in my own life. There are very, there's hierarchy in our jobs that we work in. There's hierarchy in, in family life. There's a difference between an RN, which I could never achieve, but my wife did, so we at least have one in the family, versus a CNA, which I did achieve. <laughs> and I was working as one for a number of months. A manager doesn't go and then tell, uh, the employee doesn't go and then tell his manager. It would be weird for us to think that an RN would stoop down to be a CNA, that a manager would stoop down to be an employee, that a parent would stoop down and simply be the child. But this is what we see here, what Christ is doing. 
And a much larger drop happens. He is God, but becomes man. This is the humiliation of Christ. Willfully chooses to take on the form of a servant. It's not only that Jesus took the form physically of a servant by washing the disciples' feet or serving the sick and the poor or healing the disease, but Jesus takes on the nature of a servant. And this is what it means here. It says in verse 6, we read that it says he was in the form of God. So by nature, he was God. But in verse 7, he says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And so it, at essence, who Jesus was, he became a servant to serve. In Mark 10, we read that he did not come to be served, but to serve and then to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the internal attitude of Jesus Christ. If you are sometimes in awe of the Gospels and how it is that Jesus was constantly serving, how Jesus at a very late evening is healing all these people, wakes up the next morning, gets recharged in the presence of God and continues to serve. If you are in awe of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, although they, he knew that they were arguing, he was the greatest of them all. If you are in awe of Jesus healing people, constantly never thinking about himself but thinking about the good of others, it is because, in essence, he embraced this idea of being a servant. This is where I find myself at times having a problem. When I do not want to do certain things, it doesn't just show a character flaw. What it is showing to me is that at essence, I really am lacking the attitude, this 2-5 mindset of being like Christ and being a servant. When I am clinging on to my privileges, and I am holding on to, I am the Father. I'm not supposed to be doing these menial tasks that my wife is asking me to do. Or I, don't want, I shouldn't be doing this. What am I doing? I'm holding on to my prerogatives. I am not embracing what Jesus is calling me to do here, which is to have the mindset of being a servant. In essence, embracing that role to be the servant leader that he calls me to be in the home. You see, Jesus' outward actions are simply a reflection of inward attitudes. And if you find yourself burning out in ministry, if you find yourself burning out in family when you are serving, it is because at times you are only being fueled by the fact that you have to do it versus the fact that it is something that you have embraced and you're living out of that in your life. Jesus' internal attitude was that. He acted like he acted because he thought like he did. He really embraced that role. He took on a form of a servant. Think back to the nativity scene. No place to lay his head. There is no room for him in the inn, and he is born in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. Of all the places you would think that the king of kings would come into, the lord of lords would be placed into, it's into a manger. The form of a servant. Isaiah 53 echoes this reality from the Old Testament pointing us to Christ. He is a root out of dry ground, image of humiliation and weakness. Israel was not a paradise when Jesus was born. It was politically and, and spiritually a wilderness of dry ground. Jesus did not come in as a great tree, but we read as a tender plant. He was born in poverty in Bethlehem. He grew up in a carpenter's shop and despised Nazareth. Because of his words and his works, he drew large crowds, but there was nothing 
specifically about Jesus that would draw people to himself. He would not be on the cover of Time. He would not be on the cover of Vogue. He would not be starring in any movies in L.A. Jesus made an impact in this world, not by his physical outward appearance. He made an impact in this world because of his character and his nature and his service to people. That speaks volumes to us. It's not about our abilities. It's about our character. How did this happen? How was he able to become a servant? We see here this idea of emptying by addition. In verse 7 it says, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. How can you empty yourself by taking on something else? There's a, a writer who, who wrote and gave an example, illustration of this. I was taking a Christology class. I read one of his books. He said that it is akin to pouring himself into a mold. So he has a divine nature, but he is adding a human nature, two natures in one person. Now, I want to give you an illustration. Imagine that somebody donated, donated you a million dollars. And maybe one of the desires of your heart is to go buy a Ferrari. So you go to, it probably wouldn't be for many of us, right? We're living kingdom-minded. But let's just, for the sake of an example, let's say it was just me. So I'd go to the Ferrari store. I'd, I'd come in, and I would say, I want to test drive a Ferrari. And they'd say, I want you to check your account. they check, okay, you have the money. Okay, test drive the Ferrari. And it, before the day, the day before, it rained. And so there's just mud everywhere. So I'd take that Ferrari. i drive it around everywhere. i go into this field, and i just start whipping that car around. I come back and I drive the Ferrari onto the, uh, back into the car dealership onto the floor. And the salesman runs up to me and says, what did you do to my car? How, did you, how could you have messed up my beautiful Ferrari? It's caked with mud. You can't even tell it's a Ferrari anymore. And I tell him, it is a Ferrari still. It's still a Ferrari, but it is just caked with mud all around. I didn't do anything to the car. I just added something to it, but it's still a Ferrari. And this is the illustration we see here in this verse. Jesus didn't take away any deity to himself. He simply added humanity. He was still God in all of his glory. He became one who would get tired and need to sleep. He would be one who would be talking and speaking with the Father constantly. So we have two natures in one person who is Jesus Christ. Not only did he take the form, the internal of a servant, but also the likeness, the external. And the likeness is this idea of how we look. And you realize when you're looking into the mirror, you're not getting any younger. As a baby, move into a child, a boy, a youth, a man of middle age, right? This is what we call the likeness. You have a form of humanity, outward likeness, that changes constantly. You're not the same that you were 20 years ago. So Christ takes on this likeness. In Luke 1.35, we read, The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. In Hebrews 10.5, we read this interesting verse that shows us the incarnation. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not despised, but a body you have prepared for me. The likeness, the body you have prepared for me. The reason why Jesus did this is so that he could be the compassionate high priest in our life. 
Friends, how often do we need to remind ourselves that of Hebrews 4.12, that we have a compassionate high priest who took on the form of a servant, became like us in his likeness, lived the life that we lived, experienced rejection, experienced his family not understanding him and thinking that he was a lunatic. Literally, that's what the, the Gospels uh, tell us, being around people who would reject him, having the closest people to him not ever understand him until he gets to the cross. And even then, they're lost until after the resurrection, he comes to them and they're still asking him, Lord, when will you restore the kingdom in Acts chapter 1? But he still loves them. Why? Why do we have this likeness of Christ? It's so that when we live our life, we can come to him. We truly believe that he can understand us and help us. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. C.S. Lewis, I want to read a quote to you. I think it helps us understand the greatness of Christ's sacrifice. And to understand the greatness of his sacrifice, we must understand his lofty position. He writes this, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through the green and warm water into black and cold water down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light, down below where it lay colorless in the dark. He lost his color too. Oh, and what was that precious thing that Christ came to redeem a people for himself, his, his precious bride? This is what it means in Ephesians 4 that he ascended, that he descended first so that he may ascend once again. This is what Christ accomplishes in the incarnation. He dies for a people, the people that the Father had given him. And we are the people today. Praise the Lord for that. And so Jesus does not hold on to his privileges. He takes on a form of a servant but then dies, and, and Paul builds the suspense. He doesn't count his privileges, okay? He doesn't take the form of a servant, okay? But what happens next? In verse 8, he dies. And being found, we read, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what we call limitless sacrifice. Limitless sacrifice, we have zero entitlements, radical service, and now limitless sacrifice. You see, the transition from radical service to limitless sacrifice is a pretty big step. You can live radically in sacrifice. I mean, you can live radically and serve, but there's a place where Jesus gets to have limitless sacrifice. He gives up himself. He doesn't withhold anything. 
We read here that he humbled himself. How did he do that? By becoming obedient. A servant is is known chiefly by his obedience. The ultimate purpose of Christ's self-emptying is to be fully man so that he would die on the cross for all those who would believe in him. And he did this voluntarily. He became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He came to serve and not to be served. He calls all kinds of people to himself. He was around them when we read the Gospels, around fishermen and harlots and tax collectors, the sick, the sorrowing. In John 6, we read, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's not just the act of obedience we see here, but Jesus understands the greater purpose and the mission for which he came. The point of the obedience was to fulfill the mission. And the mission was this. He became obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Later we read, therefore God has highly exalted him. Charles H. Gabriel, we sing his words, sing his song, he wrote these words, he had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. So the obedience that Jesus had accepts suffering, rejection, ridicule, and agony. It was on a cross, and it was a humiliating death. Death on a cross was a humiliating death. Jews did not practice it. It was only used by Romans. J.H. Dowett writes that ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. If there is to be any blessing, there must be some bleeding. In Isaiah 53, I want you to turn there with me. Just keep your finger in Philippians 2. But turn with me to Isaiah 53. We see this parallel passage. I want to pause here and meditate a little bit on the death of Christ. Philippians 2 very much echoes Isaiah 53. They're very parallel passages. Jesus' legal rights were taken away. Not only his legal rights were taken away, but also his human rights were taken away. He's not even treated like a person, let alone treated like a Jewish citizen. He was questioned before Annas, slapped by an officer, spat upon, beaten. Pilate scourged him. The soldiers beat him. And oftentimes, scourging was so terrible that prisoners were known to die from just the scourging. And this is why when we read in Isaiah 53, in verse 3 we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. The scourging was so terrible, the people were so appalled that they turned away because they couldn't look at him. This is limitless sacrifice. And when they realized that Jesus was a servant, they treated him like a servant or a slave. They put a cheap price on him, like Judas did, 30 pieces of silver. They were ashamed of him because he did not represent everything that was important to them. 
And what was important to them was wealth and social prestige and reputation and being served by others and pampering themselves. And this is exactly the same reason why Jesus is rejected today as he was 2,000 years ago because he does not represent what humanity, sinful humanity, desires, which is wealth and prestige and reputation. And so us following in the footsteps of Christ, we don't desire likewise. We pursue humility. We pursue service. We pursue sacrifice because that is the one. Christ, the role model, is the one who left us this example. We are his disciples. The heart of the gospel here in Isaiah 53 in verses 4 to 6, we see the penal substitutionary atonement. Look what Isaiah writes, that it was us. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the beauty of the gospel. That we didn't have to pay for the punishment of our sin. We didn't have to pay for the debt of our sin. There was another who paid for us. He was wounded. He was pierced through. Not because of what he had done, but because of what we had done. He was bruised, which means he was crushed under a weight of a burden. What was that burden? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the wrath of the Father. He was chastised. He was given many stripes. But through the stripes, it brought us and brings us healing today. Think about this. Because of what Christ has done, now we have peace with God. We cannot be condemned by God's law any longer. The healing refers to the forgiveness of our sins that we have today. Sin is no longer a burden, but today we are freed in Christ. And so here as we're looking at Philippians 2, once again, we see this example of Christ, the call of Paul, verse 5. He's saying, have this mindset, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's possible because Christ has changed you and transformed you and renewed you. And because of that, you can imitate the example of Christ. You can embrace the example of Christ. You can make Christ your role model. And because Jesus humbled himself, look with me in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. God. God has highly exalted him. And he's given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we sang it last night. Christ is the Lord. Fall on your knees. This is a picture for us. This is how God works in his economy. It's always humility before exaltation. And it's, we do not pursue exaltation ourselves. We pursue humility and we trust God and God will lead us in the right place. He'll open the right doors for us. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now there are three things <clears throat> that we saw here that Christ does. Zero entitlement, radical service, and limitless sacrifice. As we close, I want to ask you a few questions as we think about these truths. When we think about being 
when we think about entitlement, I want to ask you, are there areas in your life where you feel you are entitled? Are there things in your life where you say, that is below my pay grade? I cannot really be doing that, honey. <laughs> Boss, that's, that's for somebody else. Do you know what, what, what my uh, you know, qualifications are for my resume? I'm not supposed to be doing this. That's, that's somebody else's job. Cleaning the bathrooms at Gateway before church starts? What do we feel like we are beyond? What do we say or what do we think that this is beyond me? This is, I cannot be doing this. Jesus, as we read, was in the form of God. It did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He sets aside his own rights in obedience to the Father's purposes. He gave us this example, and then Scripture calls us to imitate that. And so humility is going to counteract that feeling of entitlement. Having that attitude of Christ is going to counteract, and you will freely be able to say, because of the power of Christ within you, not because of yourself. Because you're becoming more like Christ as you come to his word and you are transformed by beholding his glory, you're transformed from one degree of glory to another, you will be able to say, I'll take that on. I will serve there. I will sacrifice in this moment because there's nothing too low for me to do because I'm a servant like Christ was. So zero entitlement. Secondly, radical service. Are you, are you ready and willing to serve in the church in any capacity that is needed? Are you ready and willing to serve in your family in any capacity that is needed? Are you ready and willing to serve with your friends in any capacity that is needed? And we must understand that there is a sequence to this. It begins with this feeling of entitlement or a mindset, and then it moves into the service. If we do not get over the mindset, we will not be able to freely serve. If we do not first embrace the attitude, we will not be able to then freely serve in the areas where we need to serve. Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, I want to ask you, what do you need to maybe empty yourself of to be able to serve those who are around you? Which attitude, which thinking, what thinking in your mind, what beliefs that you have do you need to empty yourself of so that you can freely serve? You see, servanthood is the pathway to greatness. The path to exaltation is humility. It's serving others. I read a book a number of years ago called Humility by C.J. Mahaney. And in the, in the beginning of the book, C.J. talks about the top companies that are doing the best in revenue. And he said there was a study done among all the top CEOs. What is that defining character trait that they have, which is why their companies are soaring and making billions of dollars? And what they found after they did the study was that a lot of these companies, the person at the helm, the CEO, was someone who was humble, was someone who would be open to listening to advice, someone who was malleable, somebody who was a team player, humility. Of all the things, you see, these biblical principles hold true no matter whether a billion-dollar CEO is applying them or whether we are applying them in our life. 
Scripture is true. The Bible is true. God's way is perfect. Jesus' example not only challenges us, it casts a vision for the payoff of humbly serving ourselves, submitting ourselves to God. Lastly, we see this limitless sacrifice. And again, it overflows out of radical service. How much do you sacrifice? You see, Christ didn't just die. He died in a humiliating way. The question I have is we serve, but to what extent do we serve? Jesus didn't just go three steps. He went the whole nine yards. In James 4, it says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. In Peter, it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Once again, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. If there's going to be any blessing, there must be some bleeding. There must be some sacrifice. It's really all about Christ's kingdom at the end of the day. When we're thinking about our life in our families, when we're thinking about our life in our careers, when we're thinking about our life in just this world, the question is, why are we living the way that we're living? What is the ultimate purpose of me sacrificing in my marriage and me trying to live a biblical model in my family and me being a good worker at my job? What is the ultimate purpose? And here it is. The ultimate purpose was, was the same purpose that was in the book of Philippians, and that is for the progress and the exaltation of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. You see, when you embrace this humility, when you embrace servanthood, what happens is that this is a door for you to display the gospel to those who are around you. One of the biggest ways in marriage the gospel is displayed is by people serving each other, loving each other sacrificially, and not holding on to their own entitlements or their ambitions. And people around you look and ask, how are you able to, to live this way? Because most often in a marriage, there's constantly conflict about who's going to pull which direction. I want to do things my way. No, I want to do things my way. Well, God has given us his word, which is perfect and a model for marriage. And he says, live this way. And as you are living this way, the people who are watching with their eyes see the gospel on display, how you're serving each other. In your parenting, it's the same thing. At work, it's the same thing. The ultimate purpose is for the gospel to go forth and ultimately for Christ to be exalted. It's about his kingdom. But guess what? The most beautiful thing is that in the process, you experience the blessings. In the process, you are the beneficiary as well as God is the one who gets glorified. This is why I love God's way. And I'm so happy that God saved me. It's like, not only is God going to get glorified, but when I submit myself to God's design and everything, I'm the one who experiences the blessings as well. So all of these things, this limitless sacrifice, radical service, zero entitlement, they have in common humility. True humility is a proper attitude towards self, proper attitude, right assessment of yourself that results in proper actions towards others. True humility means renouncing yourself for the sake of others. True humility yields any rights for the sake of serving others. True humility means lowering myself to lift others up. True humility serves others in obedience to God, even at a great personal cost. And so I want to ask you, how are we to respond to the humility and the humiliation of Christ? And I have a few things here I want to share with you. Number one, stand in awe of the humility of Christ. Stand in awe of the humility of Christ. 
Come back to the gospel. Come back to Philippians 2. Come back to the cross. Come back to the incarnation. And think on it often. And think on it deeply. So that you stand in awe of the humility of Christ. We began as we started saying that we need to think about the loftiness and the glory of Christ from which he came down and stooped down. Once we understand the glory that he possessed and we understand that he left it all, we will really understand his humility will be able to stand in awe. Secondly, cause awe to turn into worship and adoration. <clears throat> cause this awe to turn into worship and adoration. When we think about substitutionary atonement, we we must ask, Lord, why me? Why in my place did you stand condemned? Why did you take upon the guilt and the suffering that I was supposed to bear? And you see, as you, as you stand in awe of the humility and you cause us all to turn into worship and adoration, I think naturally what's going to be leading you in your life is you're going to seek to be like Christ. You're going to seek to be like Christ because Philippians 2.5 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is what God calls us to. This is what Paul is calling us to for the sake and the furtherance of the gospel. So this morning we were meditating, thinking about the implications of Christ's incarnation and seeing exactly what he did. Zero entitlement, radical service, and limitless sacrifice that characterized his life and him calling us into this as well and saying, follow me. I am your role model. Because not only are you going to be blessed by it, but I'm going to be glorified through it as well. Father, we thank you for your wonderful words of life. We thank you that we could meditate on them. We thank you that they are like the sword that pierces us down to the deepest part of our, of our heart and our soul and shows us where we need to adjust and what we need to change. But not only, Lord, do you reveal the things where we need to grow, but you also say that we can do this because of the power of the gospel, because you have changed us, because you have transformed our life, because we are now a new creation and the old is done away with. Behold, all things are new. And so with that hope, Lord, we leave this place this morning with that hope and that encouragement that it is Christ in us that we leave saying, Lord, can you help me to do this? But we know that, but we know that you are the one who can help me to do this. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for your humility, for your love that you love the bride so much that you came down and took on human form so that we would have life so that we would know you, and so that we would be able to come into the presence of your Holy Father. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.